Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm Simon Sweetman. I'm your host, and we're up to episode 104, where I had a chat with Megan Dunn. She is a, a vis- well, was a visual artist and an art critic and a curator and an art enthusiast. Um, she's a writer, and uh, she's written a book that's just been released called Tinderbox. Now, fantastic read this, and it's I guess it's a novel, it's also a memoir, you know, there's that term non-fiction novel. Basically pretty much everything that happens in the book happened to her, happened, it's, it's her life. But it's also, uh, a part of the book is about her trying to write a book. So anyone interested in writing should, should read this book. It's also a, a kind of love letter and a farewell to, to a particular type of bookstore. She worked at Borders and, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to her. I loved the book and would have been interested to talk to her anyway, but I, I also worked at Borders and, um, and we didn't know each other. We worked in different stores. Um, she came back to New Zealand and worked, managed the store that I worked in after I'd left, but it was quite a bit of a trip down memory lane. So we sort of get into talking about retail and, um, and we mentioned the great David Sedaris Christmas story and we talk about all sorts of things that frustrate retailers and the death of music stores and the death of video stores and the death of bookstores. And uh, then her other big area of interest at the moment is, uh, or it's a bit of a lifelong obsession, is mermaids. She is researching a book about mermaids um, and she's interviewing all sorts of professional mermaids. So we finish off talking about that. So it was a lively chat, this one. I really enjoyed it. And um, and yeah, check out Tinderbox and check out Megan's um, website which I'll add in the notes and I'll I'll include a link to a couple of other interviews and podcasts she's done because there's lots of good chat and um, lots of interesting stuff uh, around the story of this book Tinderbox um, so thanks as always to Yeasty Boys, uh, Le Petit Chocolat and Tea Leaf Tea and this is me chatting with Wellington based writer Megan Dunn So much of your life is in the book Yeah. and and in big parts and then just small little observations and moments as well it's, it plays out like this you know non-fiction novel slash memoir yes yeah so so before we get into discussing the book talk me through I guess a little bit about where you grew up and how, how you found um, sure. books and art and writing and the things that you've got involved and how those came into your life okay well you know, like most writers, I would have been read to heaps as a kid, and mm. I was that type of child that always had their head in a book. I do. I read something by Judith Kerr, you know, the writer of Mob, mm. the Forgetful Cat, yesterday, where she had an interview in The Guardian and was saying, oh, you know, people, you know, lament screens and all the rest of it now for children, but actually when she was little, reading was almost a negative. You've got your head in a book. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it just jolted me back to experiences I had yeah. in my childhood where it was a negative too. Yeah. So books have always been very much the texture of my life. My dad, who still lives in Lyle Bay, when I was a teenager, he was selling books um, to libraries and he would often travel around the country doing that. And I do remember being in a big, bleak warehouse as a teenage girl out mm. in Lyle Bay, having to help him one holiday because my parents were separated, you know, boxing up books and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So that's a big part of my life. In my family, um, art is also in the background, especially on my father's side. My uncle is the historian, the art historian Michael Dunn. But that, I grew up with my mum above an old people's home, which I lived in when, you know, we lived in a granny flat above it and mum worked nights there. I had quite a solitary childhood reading and painting terrible Colin McCann-esque 
paintings with rollers on, yeah. my, on the porch above an old people's home. Yeah. So art was the thing that I thought I was going to do, and it was my first degree. I went to Elam first, and then writing kind of kicked in in increments afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And what's, like, creative writing or... The, the f- journalism stuff to begin, you know. I guess I, everyone, any, yeah, every writer sure. has like bad poetry attached to them. Absolutely, and it might become good poetry, but they, you know, they, yeah. Yeah, as a teenager, <laughs> I wrote horrific bad poetry that I thought at the time was about love relationships, like a bunch of love relationships I'd never had. I might add, but yeah. I realise now it was somehow about the weird symbiotic relationship I have with my mother. <laughs> Anyway, everyone, you, you move on, you go yeah. to art school, yeah. and then at art school in the 90s, everyone is like, oh, poetry, and it's just such a big joke, and, you know, like, you you move into different things, and, mm. you know, making work, drawing, doesn't matter that you can't draw anymore, just rip something off, you know, yeah. like, be an appropriation artist, which is what I became. So the first types of writing I did were essays, which I wrote for university, um, and and reviews, art reviews. Very early on, I ran, I set up and ran an art gallery called Fiat Lux, an artist-run space with my best friend when we were at art school. We didn't go to art school a lot. We set up our own gallery, became our own gang, and loads of opportunities flowed from that. I became friendly with Robert Leonard, now the chief curator of Wellington City Gallery, but then the director of the new art space on K Road. He got me writing art reviews for magazines like Pavement, Mm. and those were the first pieces I wrote. And very quickly, what happens in New Zealand, I think in a small ecosystem, suddenly everyone just wants you to write about their art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll probably be familiar with this to some degree. Yeah. So that's what I, you know, so that started to overtake my own identity as an artist and I do remember saying to friends I felt like I was a butler for other people's talent you know always opening the door for them like here's Jeeves on hand in the background (laughs) and just whip you up a quick little art review Um, but but I also enjoyed it Um, I think the essay is really my natural form but it's taken me a long long time to realise that and the essay is quite a mongrel form like we Mm. all carry a we all carry a opinion of it from high school but mm. actually it doesn't have to be so fucking boring well i feel like uh i mean because tinderbox is a is a short book yeah I'll and short. and and as i was you know as i mentioned to you briefly before we started recording i, I basically read it in two sittings mm. and i'm sure a lot of people could read it in one yes i was just on a flight with a kid so I, you know yeah yeah so i got through a good chunk of it on a plane and as i was reading it i thought this is really a giant essay. That's yes, another, that's is. another way of looking at it. You know, yes, all the sort of hybrid fiction, non-fiction, memoir stuff. Yeah, all of that is what goes into good essays these days or, or you know oh totally I mean it, you know it's almost like it's become a very fashionable thing to do but I assure you I didn't do it because I was trying to be fashionable <laughs> I did it because I can't actually do anything like, else writing a book <laughs> writing writing a book about um, you know an old strange movie based on a book and about a bookstore board. I know, it's like the worst <laughs> nothing, sell ever. Well, I was just going to say, that there's nothing fashionable about that. You don't need to no. worry about it being... It's know. not aspirational, No, which it? I think is what's so great about it. And and um, I did cringe writing it. And when I was having <laughs> problems, I always thought, Megan, it's just a big essay. Relax. Yeah, and then yeah. I would feel I could do it. So, uh, I mean... Again, we get some sort of idea of how the book comes about by reading the book, but 
Um, what is the overall kind of um, genesis and gestation period? Like, how long are we talking? It's, it's long. It's over a decade, isn't Unlike it? Unlike a really unproductive animal <laughs> that's you know. About I mean, the to time. Out. No, the time. The, the, the timeline <laughs> within the book, in terms of its main action, is 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 over a decade. Yeah, but, it is. But what's you know? When did you? I think when I looked back at my Facebook, I can see that the NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month project I did, which is where I tried to rewrite Ray Ray Bradbury's classic, Fahrenheit 451, from Mm. the perspective of the female characters, I did in 2013. Mm. Everyone signs up online. It's a self-motivated project. You try and write a 50,000-word length prose piece in, in the month of November. And you have a little graph that where you chat, charts, your, yeah, charts yeah. your word count. Yeah. And lots of writers do use it and do end up publishing books from it, although mm. I'm sure it's a rare genius that whips up 50,000 perfect words in one go. Yeah, but as a starting point. To, as a starting a first, point, to, it's to great. To get a first draft on the like, board. Like deadlines are simply the thing that motivates so many of yeah. us, you know, yeah. and, it, and it provides a deadline and a framework. So I... This idea to rewrite Fahrenheit 451 had been in my head since 2009 when I worked for UK Borders. I was at the third store I'd worked at when the whole chain was liquidated. It Mm. was the time when e-readers were really zooming in and at that moment they were at peak the e-reader market and e-book market was was just climbing exponentially. Everyone mm. thought, hey, this might play out exactly the way it has in the music industry, yeah, yeah. where the physical product will be completely flattened and it will all be traded well, online. This is the other weird thing for yeah. me about reading <laughs> yeah, your book. Is, you uh, you know. know, I worked at Borders, but uh, a lot of what happened in, in the book reminded me of working in music stores, which oh, I also did. Yeah, and I totally. worked in, And whilst there are still some music stores around, uh, I yeah. I I worked in music stores when they were grappling with um, streaming and downloading yeah. and services and, and exactly what you said in much the way the bookstores were freaking out about the Kindle yeah. and the e-reader um, people were you know stores were spending giant amounts of money putting like digital listening booths into their shop oh yeah we had shop, that we know, went through and, all of that yeah and then decided you know why are we doing this like, I know what it's is, a crazy yeah. time. We, yeah. we joke about people rearranging yeah. the deck chairs on the Titanic, but maybe they were. <laughs> yeah. like, and maybe that felt yeah. productive at yeah. the time yeah. because I remember digital listening stations. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, my goodness. And you're just and inviting board- people to come and stand in your shop and do what <laughs> they can actually do at home, you know, and they're not, yeah. they're not going to leave with anything. So it's, it's people doing their best, but yeah. something has fundamentally shifted yes. and, then no, and then it takes time for it to play and, out. And to do this is better than doing nothing you know to well, do something is, yeah. is the kind of um grasp you know that's the kind yeah. of little because it's coming to them in increments yeah, yeah. it's like the jurassic park moment when they're in the <laughs> yep. car and they look out and the ripple comes through the <laughs> <Yeah>. footprint that's <laughs> digital listening yeah, stations totally. you know, oh yeah let's put one in seems good <laughs> so everything just gets a lot worse after that yeah yeah so I mean, yours is a great book to talk about because we can, uh, for many reasons, and one of them is, it strikes me as you're starting to explain it, we can reveal a whole lot of kind of plot points and things that happen, and yet that's only going to take people to the book. It's not like a giant spoiler, you know. Yeah. I don't think you can spoil your book for other people. You can. The more you tell them about it, in a way, it's just going to intrigue people to want to read it. I well, well, I certainly, it'd be great yeah. if that is the case. <laughs> but yeah, it's not, I mean, I, I guess over the years I have totally grappled with plot. Like, 
you know, there's that. The, the, it's great that there are now all of these online masterclasses. Mm. And there's this one with, um, who is it? John Grisham, not him, Patterson, James oh, Patterson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's saying focus on the story, not the sentence. Yeah. Well, of course, like most literary marginal writers, <laughs> I wouldn't know the fucking story if you threw it in my face like a pavlova. <laughs> I'm all about the sentence. Yeah. So Tinderbox happens sentence by sentence, but mm. gear shifting it between scenes, between modes, between my life, Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's life, the filming of the movie of Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of story, but there's not really a plot spoiler to be had here. Yeah, yeah, Borders yeah. goes down. Yeah. Truffaut's movie of Fahrenheit 451 is his worst experience ever, yeah, and he never yeah. makes another film in yeah. English. And, you know, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 will always be a classic about book burning, mm. about Montag, the fire who has a kind of intellectual awakening in a society where books are banned and, you know, decides to stop burning them and start reading them. And so there's sort of metaphor on metaphor in your yeah, book or yeah. layers of it yeah, around um, around dreams going up in smoke, things yes, being burnt, yes, you know, things yes. being that you have a relationship in the book that doesn't yeah. last the duration of the book, for People example. People have been a lot more interested in that than I, than <laughs> than I you thought. thought, thought. Yeah. yeah, but it's all these little <laughs> all these little things that are, you know, yeah. and, you, and, you know, obviously you're um, documenting what it was like to... Um, run against the clock to try and write and that you know and all of that so yeah. yeah I did a first novel which was semi-autobiographical in a totally different way and it didn't sell and you know I do remember one bit of feedback I got on it which was quite lacerating when I you know but it was probably true yeah was when I lived in London still and this just guy said look a novel is like a a watch full of all of these ticking parts and if you you know to explain everything that's worn down and not working and your book is just too complex but somehow the image of a clock stuck with me you know you have to have a you have to have this race against time mm. so throughout tinderbox that's the timer that i'm writing to going off yeah you yeah. know the timer goes off and so many of us are doing things on timers which are always to hand on our wrists and our phones and so it plays with that motif I feel it's quite an obvious one, but it actually, it seems to work and it seems yeah. to keep the momentum on the text. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, it helps the, 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 the feel of the book racing along very nicely. Yeah. And, and I was going to say before, when you said, you know, uh, deadlines sort of, well, drive all of us and particularly writers, it's like, and you might have experienced this with art writing and stuff, and stuff the worst thing you can do to a writer is say, oh, just... Just we do that whenever, you yeah, know. That, then you just the the writer usually just you know just disappears to the back of the head, doesn't it? Like, yeah, it does. If someone says to me, "I need that tomorrow," that's actually great, no matter how stressful that is. Like that's yeah. great. Like cool, because then it will happen. Then it will happen. But yeah. if they say, "I'll do that," just do that sometime in the next few weeks. The next few weeks just speed by. I completely agree with you. I'm totally the same. Yeah. Yeah. I need the timer, and I need to put pressure on myself if someone mm. else isn't doing it to do things to a deadline. Yeah. The, but, but you know, the other thing I thought, reading your um, book and thinking about this um, write a novel in a month thing, mm. so when I was writing a daily blog, I was pumping out words every day for, I don't know, eight or nine years, mm. and so it's kind of like, it's like literally the best and worst thing that can happen to you as a writer, because yeah. you're just chucking stuff out, and, yeah. and 
you know, just make, making the assignment, meeting the deadline. But obviously you get better as a writer and you get faster and you get a bit sharper, but then also you start to go, oh, well, this, you know, I'll fix that tomorrow. I'll write a better thing tomorrow, like today's writing will have to do. So, yeah. So you also get a bit sloppy within that? I think I really, yeah, I find quantity usually will provide quality. Exactly. Um, exactly. So upping your volume and in, in, in doing anything, I think, usually does improve it. Um, yeah. But that's based on my life experiences and watching other artists. And often looking at artists, when I look at a show, it's often now, as a, as a middle-aged person, quite obvious to me the amount of time they might have put into it. Mm. Not even into the physicality of the show. Mm. You just start to be able to clock it, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah this person... Or you go to an art school crit, you have to do it. I do that very rarely, probably for a good reason. But you look at them, you look at their work, and you think, okay, you're not making a lot of work. Obvious, obvious. Yeah. No one's making yeah. enough work, and that is the main problem of mm. most most people. So find a way to up your ante. And, you know, for me, all of the art writing I've, I've been doing, although it takes me away from kind of my own feral creative projects... It has kept me producing copy to deadline. And I love that about journalism. I have mm. no journalism training, but two of my best writing books are by an amazing American journalist. And they're just an absolute practical toolkit. Mm -hmm. You can go to anything. What's wrong? You know, flabby middles, this, this, you know, it's mm. all there. Mm. And a lot of stuff is just simply improved by craft. Mm. You know, a lot of things that one can't bring to life can be improved by, you know, just real nuts and bolts stuff. Mm, mm. So, so, another yeah. one of the themes in the book, I guess, or, or um, is, is uh, this notion that working in a bookstore is going to, you know, being surrounded by books is going to help you write. Yeah. And, uh, and, and whilst it does... I could speak. I've worked in a couple of bookstores, including Borders, at one point. Uh, there is a a kind of beginner rush of being around all of these words and all of these yeah. books and being able to access True. them. And so I think there is this feeling early on. Well, this is great, and then, but it's a real kind of killjoy for your passion as well, isn't it? Like when you recognise that you know, in those sorts of stores anyway, like ninety um, percent of customers just want the latest Stephen King or you know whatever like not yeah. that there's anything wrong with Stephen King as a writer yeah, but sure. they just want the latest in the series mm. they want Fifty Shades of Grey or mm. you know whatever that gets quite kind of quite soul destroying in a way I and at the same time you don't want to you know you don't want to judge customers for what they're up to but it sort of becomes hard not to yeah, I guess you notice that there's a that there's a trend or a trend is a kind of the wrong word but you know, a yeah. lot of people will read a few books, and, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever reason. Usually when I read these books, if I, if I do, I discover that they're very good. I don't think that these people are all, you know, off the hizzle. Yeah. <laughs> I think they've, you know, they've cracked on to, to good books. But, yeah, it is a love-hate relationship. I mean, definitely at this time in my life now, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. I work, I juggle my own writing. I'm reading less than I ever was. I can't get through books. Mm. But when I worked for Borders, I worked, you know, I read so much mm. as a, as a single person or a person without a child. I could take books home. I could borrow them. We could bring them yeah. back so long as they were mint. I'm sure yeah. that was the same, yeah, yeah. you know. 
and I, I read a lot and it was helpful to me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there are all of those soul-destroying aspects of, oh my God, what do you do if you find out that you're not Sophie Kinsella? Or you're not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you're not Stephen King, you're not even Margaret Atwood. I mean, why did you even think you could be? Yeah. And then you find yourself in a totally marginal place. And um, I think no one can fake a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite hard to fake a book. It's a big commitment, you know, yeah. to actually, you know, there's some, obviously there's loads of bad books out there, but yeah, to actually get through a book as a writer mm. you have to you know you have to have tried <laughs> you know you yeah. can't just you can't just churn it out and go that'll do like there has to have been thought and commitment you know yeah and and I, I remember thinking this I you know I wrote a book a few years ago and it's a, you know it's a coffee table book type yeah. thing really but it's I don't know how many words it's got in it 50 or 60,000 I suppose so it's certainly a, yeah. a book book it's not a pamphlet it's yeah. you know it's substantial but I remember just going, how the fuck am I actually going to do this? Oh, I'm going to do it by turning up and just grafting away at it. And yeah. it's going to happen, you know. I'm going to go and interview these people and get some information and then I'm going to drag whatever information's been crawling around in my head forever and I'm going to, you know, we're going to knuckle down and get this done. And that's mm. sort of how it happens. And yeah. that's really, when it comes down to it, that's really how books get written. So someone sits down and just spends the hours. Yeah. I've been a junkie kind of for reading about, you know, how to write books of one form or another. Mm, mm. I think a lot of it ends up being driven by personality and temperament, the way you approach things. But yeah, at the end of the day, to write a sustained length of prose, there aren't many that fulfil that in mm. the three-week Kerouac mythical yeah, burst. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. not many. Um, yeah. yeah, most people are having to write in a... In a it's more endurance. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Um, so Even for a small book, like, it's, an, it's, it's been a feat of endurance. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So um, take me back for a minute to mm. the sort of pre-this pre book and pre-leaving New Zealand that when you get into the art writing, mm. what's, you know, lots of people talk about the art world as being kind mm. of bitchy and, and it's close-knit, mm. certainly. Um how did you approach that and how did you find that were you you know you mentioned people want your time and they want you to write about their their work and so forth but were there difficulties around that were there frustrations Would people get angry at things you said I think for me when I started I was still a still a practicing artist myself mm. and so the dilemma for me was completely internal as I realized more and more people didn't want my art but they wanted my art writing so it was a kind of internal struggle mm. in my original um, spurt of art writing and I had I was I was doing it quite intuitively I, you know, uh, knocking pieces out in a night for a deadline. Not not in the same way you are. There's much more velocity there. But it was very intuitive. I had little appreciation, really, for what skills I had and for what skills I didn't have. And it wasn't until I made the move to London and had my life leveled to nothing that I realised, okay, now I can't even get my art writing published because mm, I'm no I'm longer... I'm no one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm no one. Yeah. You know, here it was all happening because I'd run a gallery, I'd been at Elam. Without yeah. knowing it, you know, you'd built up a series yeah, yeah. of 
all these networks steps. yeah very organically which sure. is actually what networking is it's organic and, yeah. it, and it happens because you're interested in something mm, mm. and you're involved in it and you're showing up which is all the things I was doing yeah but yeah in London all of that was gone and then I, I had been making weird little videos where I rented actual videotapes because it was still that era from Mm. video easy or whatever and I cut them into other weird little dynamic <laughs> art pieces in an edit suite mm. and you know I had no money computers hadn't really taken having a, a personal home edit suite would have still cost a lot more in mm -hmm. 2001 so I was like oh I can't do any of the things I was doing I'll write and I started writing mm -hmm. other stuff mm -hmm. fiction things for me um, I was at the, so that's how all of that came about when I came back to New Zealand in 2010, much older, hopefully slightly wiser, I uh, got asked to write an art piece because, you know, New Zealand is still small enough that people remembered me and were mm. still around. And, and then it just has been its own unstoppable little snowball. And I suppose at times I thought, why have I taken all of this on because it means I don't have as much free time now to do other things but I also think the deadlines have been good for me and it's in writing this much I've written a lot over the last few years mm. um, a lot that's been seen a lot that hasn't it's been good for me mm. velocity is good for me mm. 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 and so you I mean what makes you go to the UK just Oh, does it? Just that, just the classic sort of. Oh, just the. We'll classic. go and have a look. It's a, got yeah. a time for the OE. Yeah, I was twenty-seven. Cha I think then of, at twenty-eight, yeah. the the visa thing That's would right. have gone. Yes, so yeah, I yeah. did the two-year holiday visa. Then I shacked up with an Irish guy who's mentioned in the novel. Yeah. We got we got married. Very common. Lots of New Zealanders on those two-year holiday visas yeah. got went into relationships with British UK-based people and then got married. Yeah. Um, to stay and that's yeah. exactly the trajectory that happened for me so I don't think you know there was anything you know particularly interesting about what I did there yeah, yeah. and I, I think New Zealand's changed a, a bit you know like it feels to me maybe I'm being naive but like there's some kind of cultural renaissance that's happening yeah. definitely the New Zealand self-esteem I think is a bit better than it was in 2001 like culturally For then sure. it was still quite low well, and you there have was talk these... of the brain drain and you know mm. all of that and you have all these stories now of um, you know I mean not just the the big big people like Lord and stuff yeah. but, but you have all these stories now of like bedsit artists whether it's writers, musicians, visual arts, that their work is discovered overseas first. You know, the, yeah. you know they're so connected. Yeah, and in 2001, right. that, that wasn't the case. No, it was just the beginning, and they, really, and, of that connection. And everyone felt they still needed some sort of weird yeah. validation at their, and yeah. the, in New Zealand first, yeah. and we're pretty slow to give that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, you can't rely on it. Yeah, I think it, the, the, the need for that OE in the same way, maybe it's lessened. I guess I can't speak to that too much. But mm. I do I, I do think that the cultural self-esteem is healthier. Mm -hmm. And it has had these big signifiers like the Eleanor Catton Booker mm. Prize win mm. or, or Lord. But, you know, there's a whole lot. Uh, mm. You know, yeah, there's a whole Tyker lot. Cohen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm. yeah. so um, you, you work in a bunch of different bookstore uh, borders stores I did and yeah. then I worked across three yeah and then they all they one by one 
they sort of are closing down around they you? They all closed <laughs> at the same time. Oh, right, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I had been at Islington, which is in London, a very busy store. Then I went to Borders Norwich uh, in a small city, um, you know, completely different demographic. That one size fits all Borders mm. formula mm-hmm. really didn't work. Like, in the London stores, it made sense to be open till 11pm. Yeah, there were yeah. still people there, the city stores. Mm. Norwich, you know, the local managers said this is ridiculous. They were right. After five, it was a ghost town. Mm. And then you were for months staffing it until 11 mm. o'clock at night. It was ridiculous. Well, that sort of happened here. Yeah. You know, I yeah, remember, was I remember um, my interview for that job. Two people from Australia came over and said, uh, you know, what sort of competition is Borders going to have mm. in Wellington? And I said, well, you know, there's this and this and this, you know, named all the chains. Dimmicks was still around then. But, oh, yeah. but, you know, but the real competition in Wellington is Unity Books, and they just looked at me like I was an idiot. And they were like, nah, that doesn't count. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait and see. <laughs> and look what happened, you know. And then, and I remember arguing with them about, uh, yeah, you, you you can't be open until 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday in mm. Lambton Quay. It's a ghost town, exactly what, you know, it's a ghost town after five or six o'clock, certainly, and it was. And they did eventually pull those yeah, hours, hours back. back to about mm. seven, and it was yeah. still uh, still a ghost town. Still a push. Yeah, yeah. Real I know push. what you mean. It's very yeah. pronounced in the city like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, whereas, again, in Auckland, this, yeah. the structure of that main big store, which which was, you know, a real destination for me for many yeah. years before I worked in the chain. I loved going to that yeah. store. and It was a great store mm. in its heyday. And yeah. yeah, it was right to always, it was in the right place to always get some foot traffic. Yeah. yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. I think really the chains went down because... Yeah, I can understand their confidence, thinking, oh, mm. we will take the indies out. Like, chain stores had taken indies out, you know, yeah, yeah. across the world for years. And yeah. But actually, when it happens, size, the largesse of something becomes its problem. Mm. Like, Borders was built on a model which also retailed CDs, it devoted a lot mm. of floor space to CDs and to DVDs. And then both of those markets completely plummeted, and then the book market started to be challenged, not only by digital, but also online shopping. Mm. And when I first started at Borders in 2001, Amazon was just a blip. Yeah, you know, those were the first times I was mentioning it, and it's because Amazon had a deal with Borders, where if you couldn't buy the book in Borders, we recommended you go to Amazon. So, like, Jeff, he knew what he was doing, Yeah, yeah, yeah. but Borders was still, like, lost in in the mist. Oh, I remember, um, you know, I I came across this thing recently, looking through some some old sort of files, and I found this... um, article, I think I must have written it for Salient in a student magazine in about 2000-2001 about like where to go to buy CDs online and it's just just so, you know, it's so brilliantly kind of naive, (laughs) you know it's a really appalling piece of writing but but there's also just at least you were onto it. I'm sort of, well, I was. I think I was asked to do it and I had to research it. It was a big, you know, I'd, here I was writing about it and I hadn't bought a CD online yeah. at all. And I, I think there were only three options in Wellington. To, yeah. You know, it was about the local stuff. There were about three options where you could do that. God, it takes me And back. it was so much quicker to just actually get in the car or get on the bus and drive yeah. into town and go and buy it then. The ease and the rapidity yeah. at which the online shopping in general has grown, I mm. think, just quickly surpassed so many of our expectations. Yeah. And maybe even the people behind them. Although I think there are, you know, there are great or perhaps terrible, whatever way you look at it, visionaries who, who have been able to predict that this is 
this is a growth market mm. and, and they've been right. And, you know, a tinderbox isn't like people always apologise to me. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on an e-reader. Like, I really don't care. Like, I, I actually don't care. I'm, <laughs> I'm not in store anymore. I don't yeah. have to try and sell the rival to the Kindle, some yeah. sad-ass product. <laughs> like, I'm, I actually don't mind. It's just change. That's just what it is. Mm. And for books, the story has been happier so far. They haven't been completely decimated as a market. But there was a moment in 2009 where everyone's fears were very real. Mm. But what has actually happened is that the chains have been the most challenged. And then indies have started popping up again. But let's not exaggerate what that means because it's still like a... It's a cottage industry. It's a it's an industry mm. of love, you yeah. know, the, the indie publishers, but also the bookstores. I mm. mean, no one's going, you know, not to say that they're not making money. We have excellent indies that are exceptional. Mm. But, um, you know, like, I don't think book selling isn't run by capitalist pigs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. on the shop level, yeah, on the shop yeah, floor yeah. level for, yeah. uh, of indie book selling. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. Um, lots of people, I mean, I read your interview with, with um, Hera and I mm. thought like that that was a great example of like lots of people lots of writers do go and work in bookstores yeah they you know, do or lots of people who work in bookstores obviously are interested in words they're interested in reading and they either become interested in writing or they were anyway yeah so you know in a way you've got this kind of great market for your book and yeah. that there are lots yeah, of people. Niche. Well, there are lots of people yeah. that are interested in books about books, yeah, or, and books about writing, and not you know, not not um, textbook books about writing. Yeah. So yeah. you know, the your book manages to to offer that too. Like yeah. a lot of people going. I mean, that's sort of how I found out about it, and I was like, I want to read this before I realised how. And I never use this word, but how fucking triggering it was going to be for me oh. as an ex-borders employee and and as an ex, you know, retailer. And I worked in a, um, yeah. you know, I worked in a video store too. And I worked in a video store when it was just changing over to DVD. Oh so yeah, yeah. There were, yeah, there was still like element, you know, elements of that too. That sort of fear and weirdness around that being replaced. And it was a novelty. You know, I remember working in the store, and I think they had about twenty-five DVDs. Yeah. Just a tiny, you know, the, yeah. the the flashiest of the new releases and everything else was video and then all of a sudden I know what you're saying. Yeah. I remember Another one of those videotapes being phased out yeah. from Borders as LinkedIn while yeah. I was there. There were still real chunky ass mm. videotapes on the floor. You brought back things that I hadn't thought mm. about for nearly ten years, like the Bink sticker. Oh yes, I know. <laughs> Steve Braunius asked me, What is the Bink sticker? Yeah, Megan? I like how you didn't explain it. Look, I think the reader yeah. just knows, okay, knows that that's it's... some little weird code that they mm. use in store. You yeah, know, like, yeah, we're yeah, all familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I said it's like an internal ISBN that, yeah. you know, helps borders locate and track the product and shelve it. Really essential for the terrible computers section, yeah. um, which was a particular nightmare yes, to shelve. Yes. But, yeah, I think it's a cultural moment, and some of the feedback I've got from people has really surprised me. There's been a couple of readers you know, in England, who it's really touched, and one of them had been through, you mm. know, worked in retail for years, not books or music, but had administration periods, been working, you know, building up a writing, you know, career as well on the side, like so many of us do. Um, yeah, some people, it's, it felt when I was writing it, like it was the most specious, personal 
ridiculous book in the world. <laughs> but there are some other people who I can tell they've really got mm. it and mm. it's spoken deeply mm. to them. I mean, I wouldn't say that's every reader. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've been touched and delighted. And finally, like... At the end of the book, I talk about an old um, Borders Facebook page yes, for yeah, Borders yeah. staff love, around the that. world. Yeah, yeah. And I talk about some of their comments. So, like, I, I've just watched it for a long time, but recently an online site printed an extract of Tinderbox and it was an extract of a Borders segment. So, I put it on the page and it was just so lovely. Like, I just put it there because I thought some people might get a laugh mm. out of it. Mm. And it was a part detailing the Borders Islington toilets. Let me tell you, Central Borders stores in London and the toilets were a hubbub, a nightmare. Junkies, blood, piss, shit. I mean, it was intense. And then all of these other stores were standing up. And what's more, it was a bit like the end of Fahrenheit 451 where Montag flees the city and he finds the book people in the woods and they all stand up and introduce themselves to him as the books that they've read and memorised because all books are burned so all of these stores were standing up to me online going Philadelphia 501 and mm. they were giving me their borders codes our toilets exactly <laughs> the same we had one person we called them the FICO terrorist you know like they would finger paint the bathroom or someone else was like you know store 305 Carolina we had yeah. you know we had this person who it was Brian's alien poo the mystery of Brian's alien poo, and Brian was the manager who'd mm. had to clean up this poo that looked, you know, subhuman. It, it was cute, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I was I, touched. There's lots of little um, sort of cultural moments within the book, like yeah, yeah. remembering of like the night garden thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. which you know that was before I had a child, but I can remember friends that had a kid that suddenly this was the biggest thing in their. I know. Life and 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 yeah, I was, it, so it made me think about situations like that when I worked at Borders too. I mean, I I was there for the whatever it was called, the Deathly Hallows or whatever oh, the, yeah, the, yeah. the official Potter, last yeah. Harry Potter before oh, they rebooted it. So and, was I. And I didn't read Harry Potter. I read the first yeah. one and thought it was garbage. Yeah. And I didn't bother reading the rest <laughs> of them. And you know, I'll probably read them with my son <clears throat> now or soon. And yeah. maybe maybe I'll get the point of them. But I just thought it was shitty writing that first book. So it was not for me. But I still got swept up in this fucking giant thing that was the you know, worldwide public, you know, worldwide embargoes and I know. video was, cameras on, um, you know, on, on shrink-wrapped pallets of that's stock. That's right, yeah. that's right. We weren't allowed to crack signing, into them. Signing confidentiality, <laughs> you know, signing away. Oh Every staff God. member had to sign that they would not... The Harry Potter launches were intense. Yeah. And, yeah, there were a staff holiday blackout. Yeah. Everyone yep. had to be on the yeah. on board. Yeah. And, yeah, you were all meant to be part of the magic together. I mean, I think we met at the Wellington store at like five in the morning. Oh yes. The the manager God. the manager decided to <laughs> that everyone could have you know breakfast in the cafe first because it was yeah. going to be such a big day. And I I, I don't I think the, the doors might not have opened till seven or something. Yeah. But there was a queue. Yeah. 500, 600 meters yeah. down the road. Yeah. For people that had pre-ordered it, they wanted to you know, and it was this. Abs- we were not equipped for it at all. It was massive. It was mental and. Um, we the manager, um, you know, a bunch of lots of people dressed up and, yeah. and stuff, and the manager was wearing this kind of like witch outfit. And about halfway through the day, she just got it stuck in the fucking escalator, and so that took out the. She had to tear herself free from the bottom step of the escalator, <laughs> and then we just had you know 
several hours of people complaining, why do I have to walk up the escalator? Why, oh, yeah. what, you know, why haven't you fixed it? Yeah. Well, someone, you know, might have nearly died. They got caught in it. You know, I, sorry about that. <laughs> you know, it was, I think working in retail, like, you do kind of see the worst of people. Yes. And, you know, like, people here, and even in New Zealand, I would say New Zealand, in a way, is not classist the way London is, but New Zealand can have a certain amount of privilege still. Mm. Um, and lots of people who come out of uni lots don't work in retail whereas in London you know you will find mm. a lot of amazing you just can't predict who you're working with who they are you know but there, there's this opinion retail it's unskilled work. yeah 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 it is not unskilled work exactly to explain why someone needs a code for a toilet it is not unskilled work to explain to someone why their $100 special order book can't be returned on medical whatever for their son that yeah. they now oh, no longer want I mean these sound like small things and granted they're not you know yeah, yeah. Changing, they're not, you know, open heart surgery, but that it is quite, it is quite skilled to work with the public all the time, and you do get a lot taken out on you. Well, and not, I was not good at it. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say it's not just skilled; it's fucking annoying. You know, you yeah. really do see the worst, and 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 I guess you have that. Like I remember, we used to talk about like one really great customer experience, kind of yeah. kind of got you through the day. Yeah. You know, mate, you 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 expected to have you know, half a dozen or a dozen fairly shitty or average experiences yeah. in a day. And unless they were diabolical, mm -hmm. they tended to, you know, disappear pretty quickly. But a really great customer experience stayed with you for the whole day and longer. Yeah, you that's know? And true. I, I still, I, you know, and again, all of the stuff has sort of, I, I, I'm, I'm so long out of retail, mm. um, but it really came flooding back reading the book, mm. and I really got, yeah, I got quite emotional reading about the Borders Facebook page, which I didn't know existed and, and frankly wouldn't have anything to do with yeah, yeah, sure. myself, but just, just thinking about how the, those sorts of communities that end up, because I guess when you're, like, um, you know, in the UK, there's been a lot of books and documentaries about the death of the record store for yeah, example has, yeah. you know and i've watched a, read a few of those and watched a few of those and yeah. people get very emotional about it well, understandably yeah these were community you know these were clubhouses they, they were you know yeah they, they were and i think for america borders started in america they saw the best of the chain like people who'd been there from the get-go they saw the best of it it's mm. early growth they saw great stores mm. and then they saw all of this terrible decline um, you know, yeah, there is a community of staff that, you know, I love that Bukowski quote, hell boils with laughter. I can't mm. remember if it's from post office, but, you know, I think that's a retailer's comment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you have a lot of great fun with the other people that you work with. Post office might be the great three week novel. Yeah, well, allegedly that is. was written in three yeah. weeks. Well, yeah. So. Probably. So that's certainly one that kind of stands up and is coherent. For oh, yeah. Is what I mean, sure. if, if that really did happen in three weeks. He gets, and it's quite believable with the amount he wrote. Yes, he was prolific. Yeah. But I, I love that line. And yeah, I think that's yeah. a real, yeah, that's a retailer's experience. There's great camaraderie, but not just in retail, in lots of jobs. So it gets you through. Mm. And there is there are also great experiences with customers, and I've had them too. And in fact, the longer I was in retail, I went through a really jaded period and then I kind of woke myself up out mm -hmm. of it. And then I started having better experiences with customers again. Yeah. And I found that I could attract more of that to me. And um, that was good too. That was a good lesson in just, you know, snapping yourself out of something. 
you come back to Wellington and take the job again. Mm. And then... Yeah, that, I got that, the job over Skype. Like, yeah. after borders went down in the UK, it was a really hard time of my life. That happened late 2009. We were all made redundant on Christmas Eve. Obviously, we knew it was coming. But you're playing out a company in liquidation at Christmas time. Mm. Brilliant for the liquidators. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, hell on earth for the staff. I mean, yeah. it was crazy busy. And, you know, on the final days, you're down to fill a bag for a few p and you know everyone's well not everyone is sympathetic but a lot lots of people are sympathetic and it sounds horrible but in a way that's hard too yeah, yeah. and i do remember that the children's author jacqueline wilson mm. being in the queue with her big bag full of books and well, saying her to, own books which she I was buying like i don't know what top up stock i mean fair news <laughs> yeah, everyone yeah, was there yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know i'd just been having this shouting match with a couple who were convinced i'd shortchanged them oh. something like 2p wow and yeah. they went at me and yeah. i just had enough yeah. And I, you know, it doesn't take much for me anyway. I don't know how I lasted so long in retail. Well, really. I'm actually, deeply unsuited. When you were, actually yeah. just to cut, when you were talking about that, I was going to say, did you have you read that um, David Sedaris story, the Christmas one? Oh, the Santa Land. Di- yeah, the yes. Santa Land Diaries. What a masterpiece! Well, I because I yeah, when I was in the CD store and borders, like that was like every and even I think it was part of my therapy from getting out of retail. Oh, no. I think the last two Christmases are the are the first two in about a decade. I haven't read that. I would yeah. read. I would reread the whole book, yeah. all those Christmas stories. Yeah. But particularly the Christmas Elf one. Oh, that is that is just so good. Yeah, I love it? so hard. And that bit right at the end. Yeah. You know where yeah. where where it says, um, you know, what is it? I don't want you to, you know, I, I don't want. <laughs> I, I I want to speak to your manager or whatever, yeah. and that's all. The ma- no, and then the manager says, "I don't want you to um, when you when you write your letter complaining. I don't want you to say that I'm a b- bitch. I want you to say, oh, I want you to say you're a fucking bitch because that's what you are or whatever. It's just so great. I've mangled that, but like that just stuck in my head as a as a retailer on Christmas Look, Eve. Like yeah. if I can get out of Christmas Eve without having this interaction, I've done really well. Yeah, <laughs> I think if anyone listening hasn't read it, you it's have a, to go and yeah. treat yourself because it is just pure gold, isn't it? And you feel the realness of it. Not to say. I don't love mm. fiction I mm. do but you know like David you know that he has worked as that fucking elf and you know that he chose the name Crumpet as his elf name it was yeah. all and then the you know the little flirty routines with the other elves and then there was like they would navigate them around the queue to Santa's grotto yeah. the different types of Santas he describes really well in their techniques and there was a window like on the chain and they would say look through the window and you can see da 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 and David would say things look through the window and you can see Cher and then someone would look <laughs> through right. the window yeah. and then Cher wouldn't be there and I'd be like well duh and then he <laughs> describes these, that, that great sort of it goes off into like as his sort of story essays do they yeah. fluctuate between essay, yes. essay reportage and just yes. great fiction and it, you yeah. know there's there's these bridging moments in, the, in the, that story where it's like I watched two dads get in a fist fight in the queue yeah, waiting for yeah. photos, and then that's it. Like that's yeah, a line, yeah, yeah. and then that just hangs there. And yeah. then some we we watched a kid, you know, yeah. a father take a kid, and the toilet was full, so they just piss up against the oh, Sanders yes. cave somewhere and yes. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. and, and a, a woman just flings a dirty nappy into the. Oh God, you're bringing it all back. Yeah, you're bringing <laughs> yeah, yeah. it more than me, but yeah. it is great, and I did love it. And I actually thought about it on the way over here because I was. Thinking, oh, funny. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. it was real funny. Just this morning, I was like, I have to ask you about that because I wonder. if yeah, if you'd experienced that story kind of in the way I had, like, it yeah. sounds like it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I remember, like, I remember getting staff to read it, basically saying, read this, this book, you know, 
on your break, read in the Christmas period, take this away and, and read this overnight or whatever. It'll kind of give you a little perspective on what's going on here I, on a smaller scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he nails that, that mm. intensity of that time of year in mm. retail so mm. well or in a department store. Yeah, mm. so, okay, so Christmas redundancy and, um, yeah. yeah, these just these horrible customers and then you you so what you take and then i went and worked for six months for the furniture store habitat yeah with a two-hour commute across about three trains each day in london it was like the worst time ever i tried to sell my first book had a bit of interest then it didn't work all of the border stores were liquidated i went to habitat it was horrible yeah there was a very patronizing manager at habitat i was a manager but there was a very patronizing general manager where i was trained an old theatrical guy who'd worked in theatre. Mm. He was kind of wonderful, but also mm. awful. And they gave you this He's huge... He's broken by the experience of retail himself, You no gave. Doubt. You were given this huge manual that you had to read for your habitat training. Mm. But, you know, I'm a reader, so I read it in one day, and I was just left with this book for a week, which I'd read on the first day, and I kind of went up to go, oh, what should I do next? No! No! Don't ask me what you should do next. You have the book. You have the da-da-da. I just had an awful week. I was exhausted. Yeah. I think I burst into tears, which is kind of out of character for me. I was pretty worn down. Mm. And all I remember about that manager was me trying to form a relationship with him and saying, oh, I hear you used to be in theatre. And he went, back when pussy was a kitten, darling. <laughs> <laughs> That's just always stayed with me as his one minute yeah, line yeah, that I yeah. remember him by. But it was horrible. I hated it. I miss selling books. I didn't want to do just any type of retail. Habitat yeah. had beautiful products, but it was in trouble yeah. as well, challenged by online retail. I was relieved to get the job over Skype for Borders Wellington and to come home. I had family reasons, other things all, you know. Yeah. Swirling around, it was time, and I came back, took one look at the border stores here, and thought, "Yeah, it's absolutely screwed. This is going." Yeah, down. I was, was mm. going to say. So that's a good couple. That's a good couple of years after I've left yeah, retail is, for yeah. good, and it was things weren't entirely no. great when I left. You know, the writing no. was on well on yeah. the wall, sort of thing. You can see because yep. all of the books have thinned yep. out, and if yep. you can't support your range, yep. like why are, why are you in that square footage? Yeah, There's yeah, no totally. other reason. Yeah. So the whole model had collapsed. Yeah globally and you know soon all of the New Zealand stores went down but there weren't many borders in New Zealand yeah. there were only a handful Half and a they were million. in yeah. they were at that point owned by the Whitcalls chain mm. and a group called Red Group Retail which also owned a bunch of bookstores in Australia yeah. and fortunately Whitcalls survived here but I knew I didn't want to work for a Whitcalls model store you know yeah. range is where my heart is and when there's no range I feel quite sad yeah. So I was lucky enough, I got a job as projects manager for Booksellers New Zealand and I worked in an office capacity supporting membership stores across New Zealand. That job was full of different joys and different challenges, but it was nice to be back with some contact to bookstores with range. I enjoyed that. Yeah. But um, it was also nice to leave. I just feel like I never want to think about the problems of the book world again. Mm -mm. And I'm glad that I'm glad that the moment has passed. But sometimes I'll get people give me little offhand comments about, oh, how yeah, well, e-readers, I never thought they'd last or whatever. And I thought, you know, just because the waves have rolled back. Yeah. I don't think it doesn't mean that the tide's not going to come back in again. <laughs> like because what yeah. is happening with the the, yeah. the digital zone, it's it's an unstoppable force. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think we've seen 
I don't think this is entirely the mm. end. I mean, I guess nothing, nothing ever is. I, I've, I've I've always found it kind of odd the the animosity a lot of readers have to the e-reader, though. Like I must say, like like I mean, you know, you can see there are books in yeah. this house. We buy loads of books, although we're slowing down because yeah. of money. But sure. and I go to the library every week yeah, and get books out. Yeah. But I've got a Kindle as well, yeah. and I read lots of stuff. And in fact, I read Tinderbox on my Kindle, yeah. you know, and I was when you mentioned that before, it's like, I'm not going to apologise, like you said, yeah. why, you know, it was just, I was on holiday and read about it, That was and that was the quickest way I could get it. Yeah. But I found as a, you know, what won me over about the Kindle was being a parent and having, you know, you could have one hand free. Oh, and yeah. You could feed a baby its yeah. bottle when you're up at night and you could read yeah, with, sure. a, with a reading light on. Yeah. And when you're up and when they're, you know, teething and stuff and you're soothing children in the middle of the night, yeah, I'll, that's what got me into reading. And so weeks will go by where I don't open the Kindle and read anything. I'm just in library books. I'm just in mm. bookstores. And then, you know, going on holiday and just taking one tiny little device mm. on holiday rather than a stack of books is... You know, so for me, there's room. You know, they just do. just as there's a tape deck, a CD player, you know, mm. a turntable, and then there's a computer with a cord plugged into it, and actually, you know, yeah. most of my daily listening is Spotify these days. But yes, I still yes. jump away from that to go to all those other formats. So yeah. I find it weird that people have, you know, they think that there's an integrity and a loyalty. Like, yeah. you know, I, you know, did you used to get customers? Customers used to come up to us in Borders and and in the CD store and sort of talk about how proud they were for buying CDs rather than burning them. And it's kind of like, well, everyone's fucking burning CDs. Even yeah. people who buy them, who gives a shit? Like, yeah. you know, you're not, it's none, of, none of your money's going in my pocket or, <laughs> or particularly in yeah. the artists. You know, yeah, who are yeah. you, what are you proud of here? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. I think yeah, there are, there are still people who. Uh, I mean, it's fine if people who feel, identify yeah, yeah, strongly yeah. with yeah. one format and and feel that there's a beneficence, I yes. guess, in yeah. that format. Sure. Um, I suppose it's I yeah, I guess it's interesting, but I think there's only flux, and really, people have been are quite able to toggle back and forth between mm. multiple formats, multiple browser windows, mm. even. Mm. I mean, yes, I'm not saying I think it's all positive, but I chosen tinderbox to look at it you, you not to just take the easy road and mm. look at it as though it's all decline i felt mm. like there was a responsibility to look at some of the benefits of technology which is why i tried to reboot the dog as mm. kind of a friendly figure having recently watched black mirror oh, yes. oh my yeah, god yeah. You know, yeah. With how the, good was that robot dog? I oh, mean, how frightening! It's just, that's the best of the new series, isn't it? Yeah, and it's utterly terrifying. Yeah, that's why. It's but so I good. chose to create a vision where you could have a relationship with with technology yes. that was still had good attributes to it. And I suppose that's really because technology still at the moment, yes. well, maybe is yeah. in our hands. Yeah. Well, that's you know, and that's another thing. Until I, it takes over. We, we've talked we've talked around this a bit already, but that's another thing I thought with Tinderboxes, you've really you've really you're memorialising an era. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. it's an era in very very recent history in the scheme of things. Yeah. But also, yeah, how funny is it to think back to how archaic things in two thousand and one were? I and, know. And yet, you know, they weren't. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they weren't, but they really are. Like, yeah. You try, you know, two thousand and one feels, and two thousand and two, two thousand and three, you know, that's all 
people are already ditching their landlines and using cell phones and and whatever uh you know it's not like old dial phones and answer messages and stuff like that it's pretty modern but then so much of it is just not at all like it's it's very strange yeah it is very recent history and i suppose there's an interesting well maybe it's interesting such a facile word but i suppose there's a little bit of a take on a chain bookseller Mm. and you know that is much more debased than an indie bookseller like i have had a conversation in new zealand at a at an art dinner where you know (laughs) i was talking to a a curator and another writer and you know I said I'd worked at Borders and the curator openly laughed (laughs) and went Borders you know and then like people do about Starbucks yeah and then the art art writer said I just assumed it was Waterstones And it's just like it doesn't fucking matter, of course. Tinderbox yeah. wouldn't be funny yeah, yeah. if it wasn't a chain bookseller's exactly. perspective. Exactly. Like this is actually what it's about. Yeah. It's about the Starbucksification yes. of of culture and this kind of little blip where these chain bookstores ruled the earth and then yeah. they were toppled. And um, you know that's one of its strong strands. Yeah. Looked yeah. at through the through the motif of a future without books and and Bradbury's idea of book burning and anti-intellectualism is kind of turned around to be to being you know a future where maybe there'll be no physical books maybe it'll all just be in the cloud maybe Mm. just multiple kind of little riffs and realities there but it does strike me that yeah I wanted to look at that debased figure Mm -hmm. and yeah someone else was very kindly and kind of generously trying to say to me the other day yeah and it's interesting because you know you wrote about your life yet your life's not special (laughs) (laughs) and this is perfectly true yeah 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 but like well but isn't that what do you say well what you say is isn't that the great (laughs) isn't that the great thing about writing is that any subject can be Mm. interesting if the writing's good enough yeah or or and within being good enough if it's honest or or playful or mm. satirical or whatever the thing that's whatever the thing that shapes it but the writing has to be good and a yeah. good you know I, you know I'm sure you're the same like a, you'll read a good writer you read them no matter what they're fucking writing about yeah. you know like you know Braunius is a great example yes. of a guy who writes a lot of different types of things now mm. sometimes he writes some really sort of poking a stick contentious mm, pieces and they're fascinating mm. and then you read him sometimes writing really heartfelt earnest mm. stuff like a lot of people might think that cynical's a default setting for him but it's mm. not you know i used those um i used to love those back page of the listeners that you know the columns that he wrote mm. when you know three or four weeks in a row it'd be a piss take and then there'd just be this really tender story about you know, going for a walk somewhere and or remembering a person who died or, mm. you know, whatever it was that he was caught up in. And so, yeah, you have these people, you read them because of how good they are at writing. So I they think, make anything interesting. I think Tinderbox is a kind of performance of voice and a lot of it is funny and has a particular edge to it. But there are, you know, no, but it also dips and has different emotional mm. moments too. Mm. And, you know, you need a bit of texture to any sustained length piece of writing. Um, but yeah, totally. It's a singer, not the song, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But it's know. interesting to see, you know, like, it, it, you, yeah, you've put together a book that has is I guess the book version of how you were making your art you know or yeah. link, link to yes, it I at have. least yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
there's this great book. I mean, I quite like reading stuff by the artist Grayson Perry, you know, yeah. the British artist. And yeah. I read a book that I got out of City Gallery Bookshop one day and... Uh, He's like, you know, when you're young and you leave art school, you know, it feels like you all get on the bus to Halinsky. And I mean, this is probably going to make no sense, but I'm like, yeah. And he's like, the trick is not to get off the bus and change onto another bus. The trick is actually just to keep riding it and riding it. And eventually, you know, you're going to get there. And I suppose I thought I'd got off the bus and I'd changed tact. But actually, all of my old strategies have just caught up with me in my new form. You know, like all of the techniques I did, you know, cutting up videos and cutting up stories, I've ended up, have come back to haunt me I have desperately tried to write other types of books but it seems like I've had to reconcile that my range is kind of you know I don't think I have huge range and I have a strong voice in one direction and at the moment it's just better that I go with that and Mm. tinderbox is the productive version of that and hopefully you know the the stuff I'm starting to work on now hopefully I'll be able to bring that forward in a similar but different way too and you get a little um couple of lines or a few pages and mentions of our video in there which is a nice little touch too and uh, you know because they're going through their version of you know struggling to maintain their relevancy or what you know however you want to call it and And yet they are a vital service to a lot of people yeah and I think I think what interests me about them and about so many stores like with Borders it's easy for people to think oh they were crap stores and that's why they went but when you look at Aro actually sometimes it's not about whether you were crap it's just the whole culture has changed like it doesn't matter you know like when when that tide comes in and just changes it just changes everything and it doesn't matter if you were good or not i've got a six-year-old who mm. collects dvds and mm. talks about the movie store because we live so close to it and i you know for his sixth birthday party he invited people around to watch a dvd and mm. i think most of the kids had had probably not seen a dvd wow already yeah. or quite a, you know probably 50 yeah, 50 sure. like because they watch netflix yeah. or whatever or their parents you yeah, know stream movies for them one way or another or they don't you know whatever it is mm. and he was very excited about Showing them. showing them the DVD and he he had movie tickets that we'd got for him that he gave them like they were going into a little movie theatre and he's obsessed with this whole world which makes me sound like a terrible parent but um, he's that's what he's into and we we it's really fun but we keep sort of saying to him like you know you're going to be the like like I was the weird kid who talked about records yeah. at school when everyone was playing CDs, mm. and I'm like, I can see it happening all over again. But there's something quite neat about that as well. But there is a real romance to mm. the indie store yeah. too, and yeah. you know, and I guess a lot of us are just, I think we just live in such conflicted times. I mean, maybe that's always been said. I'm sure it's always been true. Mm. But mm. now we ha- increasingly have to think about and can't stop thinking about oh, where did this product come from that I'm holding? What mm. kind of labour made this? What? Yeah. Where is it? Where am I buying it from? Where's this? Yeah. Where is all of this traffic of money flowing to and in and out of? What's happening yeah. here? Yeah. And we what think the, that about everything. What are the ethics Food, around yeah, yeah, this everything. meal, this, this movie, <laughs> yeah, which is... And sometimes I miss being a teenager and just being so naive that yeah. I didn't think about yeah. any of those things. Yeah, I went to the store and got this. Yeah. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. Yeah, ate yeah. this, didn't ate think that, about yeah, it. Was yeah. it a lie? Is that a problem? <laughs> yeah. You know, didn't think about how, yeah. or, you know, it was just totally subconscious to things. Yeah. And I miss that innocence. But when none of us, you know, once you read a gear shift into middle age, that 
you're unavoidably coming up against that. And I think the internet, I, I think, is, you know, it's going to be monetized. It is being monetized, mm. and I think we'll see more of it mm, in one mm. way or another mm. play out. Mm. Now, you're, um, you mentioned you've written quite a bit recently, you're, but you're a, um, you're a mother. Yes. You're, uh, you've got yeah. a young child, so yeah. how do you make that all work, and what's, what's coming out next you know, some of the writing is for you and for you alone or whatever, but yeah. how, how are you making that all sort of fit? I think it's, you know, it's pretty jolly difficult, but, you know, at this age, uh, I know there's never going to be another way, so I've just got that pressure on me to mm. do what I want to do. To get it done. Yeah, to, to get it done. Yeah. yeah. I, I work part-time at City Gallery. I'm a contractor there. It's been a godsend because I've had flexibility, which you need with a small mm -hmm. child because mm -hmm. they will get sick all the time. Yeah. Certainly a feature of my first year. I've been very broken, like I've been tired. I've been yep. in the worst physical shape of my life but my writing's been in good shape like my <laughs> yeah, writing's yeah, in good yeah, shape because yeah. I write a lot yeah, but yeah. you know I've Fern my daughter didn't sleep through the night for two years and I found that that just really took it out of us yeah but what I'm working on I work on a number of art writing projects I've got a, another project coming up soon writing on the next Ruth Watson work on the four plinths outside to Papa and I'm also writing a piece about professional mermaids which will be in an upcoming issue of Canva and mermaids are really my big focus area now. Yeah, now how did, so how did you get hooked on the mermaids? Well, I always loved Splash, yeah. you know. I yeah, loved yeah. Splash when I was little. Yeah. Saw it, loved it, thought it was magical. Did you and make, then, is that one of the movies you made your own version of? Yes. You cut it up? Yeah, yeah I cut it up in yeah. art school. Yeah. And I remember just being told this can't be about <laughs> Daryl Hannah. You know, just this yeah. kind of intellectual rejection yeah. of Splash and Daryl Hannah. And then it was, you know, just a couple of years ago when I looked out at the world and the internet and saw all of these professional mermaids, you know, people buying or making full silicon tails and working in one capacity or another as mermaids, often children's entertainers, entrepreneurs, uh, underwater models. And so I, I could see that some of their tales were clearly directly inspired by the splash tale right and then i just thought okay this can be about daryl hannah and it just hit a switch for me i've always <laughs> loved mermaids and then i started skyping with them so i've just been writing to people saying hey i'm writing a book about mermaids will you talk to me and i've been talking to mermaids and mermen all around the world for a year now they take quite a lot of chasing those mermaids but they're always worth it and just digging into their mm, worlds mm. and into the way i guess i guess i think it is another story that's similar to tinderbox which is about people wanting to be you know at the crest of their own narrative like mm. the narratives people are writing into their own lives by their prof you know by this profession mm. um and you know why do little girls want to be mermaids yeah are you oh, i'm just guessing that mm. there's a kink fetish side to mermaids too is that or is that completely outside of what you're looking at i think the majority of professional mermaids are not working in an adult capacity yeah. um but yeah i will look at the the more long-term association yeah. with with mermaids and you know obviously yeah i was sort of thinking we about, have a strip yeah. club called mermaids and yeah you know, well I, I was sort of thinking about like there is a pornography industry of mermaids. The opportunities for a, for a person working in this 
you know, being involved in this industry, if it, if there are sort of gateways like there are in, in other situations that lead people into, yeah. you know, adult industries and pornography and stuff. Is I think professional mermaiding is actually very um, much about children and yeah. a lot of its components. And, and you know, I realise that there can be a disappointment factor almost in that, but I think it is about looking at a feminised strand of the internet and mm-hmm. a feminised strand of work. And I think what we... You know, fulfilling the wishes of children is also something that we all we just kind of flick off pretty quickly. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, um, so that's interesting to me too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's a great bar in Florida called the Rec Bar, one of the only porthole bars in the world, um, kind of built in the heyday of 1950s tourism. And there is a woman in uh, Marina or Medu Sirena who works there doing a burlesque mermaid show right, yeah, with, yeah. A, with a pod of swimmers. But this isn't debased stuff. No, like, no, this no, is no. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, her, people train for a year yeah. before they can do the shows with yeah, yeah. Um, so like the work is actually a lot more varied than I thought and uh, yeah the world is a lot bigger than I thought and when I started with it I didn't think I was going to be writing a book about women and water and nature and, and actually I kind of am it sound, that sounds fascinating. It also sounds like that could be... And it's also about Splash, yeah. if I didn't get that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it sounds like it could be a really great, like, sort of audio documentary series too. Like oh, the, yeah. You know, like a, podcast, a limited yeah. podcast series with the, you know, like those things John Ronson's doing and stuff. Yeah, now. I suppose like it, it could, could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess just because I write, yeah, yeah, the, the way I think the, about yeah, yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah. And I suppose I want to do some formally innovative well I say innovative but you know you want to be able to embody these people's experiences and mm. show and show them and be them on the page mm-hmm. a little bit and mm. you know so you can go through that with them like I've just interviewed one woman who you know she made a mermaid tail but not only that she made a bag shaped like the mermaid mm. tail to fit it to and then it she put it over her shoulder and went round the world yeah. like swimming with it <laughs> I, I love Amazing. stuff like that. Yeah, and then yeah. when we got down to it with her, this is before all of mermaiding really took off, she said, you know what? That bag was inspired by a pair of roller skates I got when I was eight. And I loved the roller skates, but more than that, I loved the roller skate-shaped bag that they came in. So when <laughs> yeah. I made my tail, I was just like, you know, hot damn, I'm going to make a, a bag, bag for the tail. Yeah. And she, you know, <laughs> so she went around the world with it and said, still to this day, I have a tail-shaped bag for wow. all of my tails. Wow. I, I kind of love stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, totally. I love those crazy details. Yeah. I think this is why I haven't ended up being a novelist because I'm too much of a junkie for what other people will tell me. Mm. But, you know, isn't it great too that how um, fluid genre lines are now across yes. across not just writing but you yeah, know, every- movies, performance, you know, mm. you look at an arts festival lineup, it's always, you know, the dreaded word multimedia, but it's mm. great that it, you know, things are cross discipline, mm. you know, that you, you, you know, and, you know, I was watching that. Have you seen the movie Phantom Threat? The, Not the new, yet. I've it's, seen the trailer. It's, it's great. Well, I loved it. It looks you know. harrowing. Yeah, but I thought, well, <laughs> it kind of is, and it's wonderful, I thought. But um, one of the things I loved about it was, as you're watching it, you're wondering what kind of fucking movie it's going to turn into yeah. almost the whole time. And God, that's cool. You know, like it you, is can, interesting. you can see 
it's great. Like to me, it was great from the opening scenes. There's you know all of the things you'd expect: beautiful attention to detail yeah. and strange obsessions and and you know crack sort of romance with cracks in it and all of the sort of things that's P.T. Anderson. But um, I didn't know you know if there's going to be a murder or if there's going to be like people oh. running away somewhere or if it's going to turn into a savage comedy or if, or if it was going to turn into a giant musical number. Like all of these things were possible, and the whole time I was watching it, I was like, you know. Where's the twist? Is the twist that there's no twist? You know, when's the twist coming? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Isn't yeah. that cool, though, rather than just sort of sitting in a movie theatre and just going, oh, I'll let this wash over me? And So true. I think that comes across in the trailer, too, because I remember mm. watching the trailer for Phantom Thread and just thinking, oh, well, I don't know what's going on here. Daniel Day-Lewis, always so pleased with himself. Yeah. Yes, you're good, <laughs> but, like, mm. yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's harsh. But, you know, this is the thing. As critics, we can be harsh, Yeah, right? yeah. No, you're pretty... You, it's, that, that's true. But he is, gra- but he is <laughs> great sure at the he same is. time. But, um, but yeah. yeah oh, I've, right. I mean, I've read some people have been whinging about it and thinking it's absurd and stuff. I sort of I've think that's great. i good reviews of it. Yeah, it's... But, you know, I just... Again, it's just sort of like... And it is rare. But, too, I watch a lot of TV to let it wash over me. Sure. And, you know, at home. I mean, I don't go to the movies for that. I And I go to the movies less, of course. Yeah, yeah. Now that more's available from yeah. home. Yeah. Um, and you have a child. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. But, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I love to go... At, and I think people like to know... You know, you're training the reader what they're reading. Mm. And that's why people go back and back to various forms, because there's an experience that they want played out. And it's played out in this crime novel, or it's played Mm. out in this romance novel, or even with literary fiction, which is very debased at the moment. You know, white middle-class people, you know, ruminating over cups of tea in their relationships. You know, some people want to go to that. There are great literary fiction works too. Sure. You know, in a muddle, looking at a puddle, relationship falling apart. That's cool. Like, don't ban those people. No, no, no. The thing is that we actually want it all, you know, and we when I think like when I think that the art world is too pretentious or the work has gone too far away from society or the community in general, I oscillate on that and I just swing round and round on it because really one wants Fred Astaire but you also want Lee Bowery too and you know Fred is going to be way more like palatable to mm-hmm. most but if I had to give up Lee I would be gutted you know yeah. and so I think with with art that's really right on the edge you know you need it all you need your mainstream and you need your avant-garde and, and the same person could want to go between both of them mm, mm. um we've had a good old chat and i'm well, i'm conscious of your time mm. but so is there anything you want to like is there anything i should have asked you or that you want to put across before we run out of time no, is there anything you think I've missed? No, no, we, no, no. I never what? end up talking much about Truffaut's film. No, and but, I was, but, I, yeah, but yeah. Like, what, what do I say? Go and watch it. It's a failure, but it's an interesting yeah, well, see, failure. I, I, I haven't seen it yet, yeah. but like that was one of the things I sort of stored away reading the book. I was like, I yeah. have to see that, and, yeah. and I love those kind of car crash failure things. You know, like yes, I love. So you know, when you unpack them. It was really good reading. Um, you know, Questlove, the drummer from the Roots, he wrote this really mm. good book his memoir where he did a whole section about how you know he wants to go to someone's you know all the sort of 
you know, your great artists like your Neil Youngs and Bob mm. Dylan's and whatever, and how they've all got a failure album in their in their catalogue, oh, and, and how yeah. that's the most interesting thing to him, and how yeah. you know he he went and spent ages listening. Like Stevie Wonder did this, um, you know, incredible run of albums in the seventies, like yeah, yeah. none better kind of thing. Then he puts out this like synthesizer, instru- largely instrumental album that's the soundtrack to a documentary about plants. Wow. And it's like, what the fuck did he do that for? Yeah. And he sort of talked about how much time he spent listening to that. It's a double album too. Mm. And, it, and it is pretty great. Like when I first heard it, I first heard it as a failure and went, you know, how the fuck did this happen? Yeah. But the more you listen to it, you're like, there's some really good shit here. There's some interesting stuff. Like mm. it's still a, a failure on many levels. So yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in that. Like I think Truffaut's film is very tonally, it does have a weird tone and pitch to it, but it's incredibly memorable. And it does infect you with a really nebulous mood, or at least it did me. So I enjoyed unspooling that film. And more than that, I enjoyed thinking about all of the DVD extras. And I find Mm. now the moment me and my partner are interested in something, it's playing in front of us and we're Wikipedia-ing it at the same time. Yeah, yeah, And we just want everything. Yeah, you're... Like, we're quite... Disappearing down the rabbit holes as it's happening, going... What else has this person been in? What else did they do? Obviously yeah. not at the movie, but at yeah, home, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you just yeah. kind of, you want it all. Oh, it's, totally. It's like a terrible greed, isn't it? Yeah, it um, is. And uh, so I enjoyed indulging all of those bad habits that we're all said to have with Tinderbox, yeah. and its form is about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was fun, and I got to do a lot of that with the movie, which also gave me a different through road because I didn't want to write or every single time I am writing about Bradbury's <laughs> yeah. characters yeah. Like I was, you know the problems I had with the estate meant I had to do more of that than I had ever intended to do mm. and I was looking for ways to circumvent it and the film was one of those ways but there's going to be an HBO Fahrenheit 451 soon right wow and I'm looking forward to that like yeah. you know that should be amazing a completely different take on it You've done um, quite a bit of publicity for the book. Yeah. Seems to get, have been doing the... You're, you're doing I the rounds and the book's doing the rounds, which is cool. Yeah, I feel lucky. I mean... You're, you know, go, you're good at talking about it. How did you survive... Well, mm-hmm. you, I know you survived Kim Hill, but how did you find that experience? Oh, I was nervous, obviously, yeah. going in. I mean, I felt lucky to get on Kim Hill. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I was nervous. No, it was great. And uh, I wasn't expecting to be taken apart. But but still, I yeah. you know still I wasn't. It's in the back of your head though, right? But yeah, it's in the back <laughs> of your head. You know, like I, I had this. I, I went on yeah. Kim Hill when yeah. my book came out, and I we had the book launched on the Friday night and I was going on Kim Hill on the Saturday morning and we went out oh, for wow. some drinks and yep. a guy said to, one of my friends said you better not drink too much you've got a big day tomorrow and I said it's not that big what and he goes you were talking to Kim Hill and I was yeah. like well she's hardly fucking gonna hit me up about fracking is she you know yeah. like I've written, I've written a fucking book celebrating a whole lot of New Zealand music like yeah. she might read a couple of angry e- <laughs> she might read a couple of angry emails at me because some people might write in and say yeah. you know you didn't like that band that we like but yeah. that's fucking walk in the park I haven't yeah. done anything wrong you know I'm not I'm not being asked to defend but then I got in the I got in there and I was like oh fuck like she what if she tears me to bits and then yeah. she did not it was good you know but yeah yeah I found it good but intimidating yeah. when I went out I didn't necessarily have the feeling that I'd nailed it but then you know lots of people started no, to say did. that it was good yeah. and then I felt 
better. I mean, I felt bad when she interrupted, when I interrupted her, and, and then I was mm. like, oh God, you say, I am one to hold the talking bone, and that always makes you feel like an inauthentic writer as well, because, you know, we're all meant to be the Joan Didion introvert type, <laughs> and I'm like, not exactly like that. But still, you know, I I like interviewing people myself, and yeah, I do yeah, a lot yeah, of that yeah. with artists, and now with mermaids, of yeah, course. Yeah. So that was good. And yeah, she's got the screen in front of her, so she's reading interactions come into yes. her, and you can't see them. And, and then you're having to kind of respond to them, and that's kind of weird on the cuff doing yeah. that. But I mean, what a what an amazing thing to do to sit there all morning, going from fire and fury to my obscure little memoir. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Via, and she does it via science yeah. discussions and yeah, yeah. all sorts of other things. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So it's a skill. I feel like the publicity I've had for Tinderbox is here has been much better than I expected. You know, I've worked in a bookstore, yeah, so yeah. my expectations were nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you, um, she asked, she asked the hard question about the books typos yeah and how did you feel when she brought that up well not great you know like yeah. obviously I felt aware that that was that's something that has come to light and you know Gally Beggar who have published it have been great editors they've really helped over a long period of time to restructure mm. the book and look at its strengths and weaknesses but they are a two-man band operation they're a powerful Indie, you know, mm. going full full tilt, and we all just ended up in a cascade where we've been caught a bit short. Mm. And you know, me with my, you know, that's just what happened. But it's a reality, and I just had to take it on board because I'd had enough people say it to me that when Kim Hill brought it up, I knew it was true. Mm. But yeah, I was in the well, moment. I was thinking, oh, do you know? What? I was so glad she brought it up for the only for the reason that because I read it on the Kindle, I thought, is this some weird Kindle oh, only Kindle thing? Glitch, yeah. Is it a Kindle? You know, yeah. is that is that something yeah. that's and and obviously it's not. But no. so for that, I was kind of thankful she brought it up. Yeah, no, I'd had a few, people. and it means I get to bring it up. Through yeah. her, you know, I via know. her. I don't, yeah. I don't, I'm not the bad guy. Well, proofing isn't my greatest strength, but there were just a few things that got down to the wire, and mm. that was a casualty. Mm. And, you know, I suppose out of respect to me and to all of the immense amount of work that the publisher did put in, I just want to, I just have to wear that for this one yeah, and make yeah. sure I bloody well am on top of things for next time. And it has brought all of these people out of the woodwork who've offered to proof my mermaid book. <laughs> Are you going to interview Daryl Hannah? Oh, God, I hope so. Mm. I mean, I have written to her website, haven't heard right. back. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I think as it, as it gains more and more momentum and, you know, I, I'm not going to rule it out yet. I would love to. And it's very interesting because she, in her later life, has become a real activist. She's, um, she's in a she's relationship in a, with Neil Young. Yeah, and she's and, a yeah, big they, environmental And they both activist. are separately yeah. and then now together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's massively... And into. I think that says a lot for the current um, ecology of, of mermaiding too, even though I completely recognise she is not a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so do the, the mermaids in the business. <laughs> yeah. But the most famous, probably the most famous uh, professional mermaid in the world is Hannah Fraser who saw Splash when she was young and made her first tail at nine years old after watching it, sewing wow. together orange tablecloth wow. to, um, and started swimming in her pool <laughs> so Splash is like so much more than one might think yeah, yeah, yeah wow um, well hey, it's been, I, I mean we've never met before so it's been great talking because I feel like I've met you through this conversation, obviously I sort of met you through your book mm. there's, en there's enough of you in your book to give yeah. people a good glimpse into the 
the things that have gone on in your life, but um, there are parts of my life that aren't in the book. I yes. would like to say, yeah. like one of the things that surprised me was you go to daycare to pick up your daughter, then someone says, "Oh, I read your book." Ah, uh, yeah. And then it's like the shock of my yeah. obscure book being read by someone, and the, there's a feeling of wanting to apologise instantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, then then she's like, "Now I feel like I know too much about you." And I suppose I thought, "Oh, yeah, I guess in a way you do, but in a way you also don't because." You know, not. I have still selected what yes. I've shown. Yeah. And it is still a performance. Yes. Yeah. On yeah. The page. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I had a brutal experience with that. I had several years of walking in and out of daycare with no problems, and then yeah. one and then one day I reviewed a Robbie Williams concert. Oh, yes, and, I know about and, that. And yeah. the week later, I went into daycare and I had parents and daycare oh. teach. All of a sudden, they all knew what I did and wondered how I was. So that was kind of weird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, criticism is a very, very volatile area, and I kind of tend to work at the nicey-nicey end of it in art writing, and I mm. hesitate to call myself an art critic. But not. But sometimes I wonder if that's a bit lame of me. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's a real hard thing in a small environment to front up and put, down your, put your shtick down, although everyone is doing it behind closed doors. Yes, yeah, yeah. Criticism is just a formal... Um, formalized version of human behavior well so you can see again like all of these all of these different strands of your mm-hmm. life and background are in the book and the way that you sort of I mean you don't name names maliciously in the book but mm-hmm. the way that you name names and use real names a lot of the time mm-hmm. and real situations struck me as that's come from your background of essay writing and mm-hmm. criticism and yeah, just totally. and, and fronting up like yeah. there is a confidence there that there might not be in a first-time novelist who has not published criticism. These British guys who I met at the London launch, really great guys, have done a podcast called Unsound Methods on experimental writers. Mm. And they were like to me, yeah, we feel like you were pretty out there, you know, with names and stuff in the book and, you know, like, how did it feel to be, you know, that mean? They said a better word than that about people. Mm. And I was like, oh, what names? I thought I was totally mild. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I listened to that. That's a good listen. And and, and I'll include a link to it in this for people because that's a good listen. But, yeah, it was funny when you said that because I thought the same thing like it wasn't like you named and shamed as I say there's nothing malicious about it but clearly they were they were kind of like in awe of the fact that you I thought maybe it is a Kiwi thing yes. and I would yeah. have things happen to me when I was in the border stores in England and you know that would be slightly different cultural experiences that people aren't used to and uh, I've recently interviewed an Australian mermaid and I found oh yeah I'm really on a level with her she's a real straight shooter and at the end of the conversation I had the, I said to her god here I was in the morning ringing up this hot blonde babe thinking what the hell are we going to talk about (laughs) and at the end of the conversation we just had the frankest conversation (laughs) ever Mm. and we were just laughing about it Mm. but but so yeah there is a certain straight shooter element Mm. yeah I thought I mean I could have been so much worse about people who I worked with in those stores and I'm sure they could be horrendous about me sure as time got on I mean all I was interested in doing was bloody merchandising I just wanted to be left alone to make displays (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah hey thanks so much i look forward to updates on the mermaid situation yeah situation yeah yeah let's call you know i don't want to label it as a particular kind of piece of writing no i don't think we can at this point i feel like it's i feel like 
yeah, a few different things are going to happen around that, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. yeah, I don't, you know, yeah, I think so too. Mermaids are bigger than Christmas in my world. Yeah, <laughs> but thank you, thanks cool. for yeah. um, having me round. No, it's been great. <laughs>